When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to what we think of and maybe will be a special edition of The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am special edition Kate Gibson. <laughs> she indeed was a special edition it was. many years ago when she was born. I was. My daughter. But we're going to go back. Normally, we look at books that are about to come out or have just come out or have been out for a short time that you might want to read. In this case, we're going to go back 17 years to a morning on Good Morning America when I was hosting. And, well, uh, we went back and found the tape. Taylor Rhodes, who's our producer for Good Morning America, went back and found the tape from 17 years ago. And this is what I said. I'm going to tell you a true story. I was sitting in my office four or five months ago, and the fellow, Daryl, who delivers the mail in her office, dropped off a book from a publisher. And there was just a note inside, unsigned, that said... Uh, this book is coming out next March. You might like it. Uh, so I just happened to stick it in my briefcase, took it home, picked it up a day or so later and read it. And it's it's very frustrating when you read a book that no one else has read because there's no one to talk to about it. And in this case, I thought to myself, this book might just be great. It is called The Book Thief. And I've had a number of friends read it since. And they all agree. And people did agree. The book was The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. He gives us a lot of credit, as you'll hear when we talk to him in just a few moments. He gives us a lot of credit for starting that book, and it was on the bestseller list for decades, for decades. And when I say I got some other people to read it, one of the people I got to read it was Kate Gibson. Well, actually, it's sort of funny. First of all, you couldn't see the clip, but there was a lot more hair on my father <laughs> than there was. There was a great more. Anyway, uh, I'm so sure glad I, this I, is audio, but I'm sure I'm sure sorry you you did that. But go ahead. No, go ahead. Anyway, so when you see the clip, it's terrific because when he talks about, it, he says he's so frustrated because he finishes the book and he can't talk to anybody about it. So in some ways, this is where the bookcase came from because that was my first experience, I think, where I received the book and then I got a call almost, I think, about a, a half an hour after UPS had dropped off the package. And you called me up and you said, have you read it yet? And I've said, well, you know, given that it's been in my possession for all of about 20 minutes, the answer is no, I haven't. But I knew that I had to make it a priority. And so I sat down and I read it. And it's, I think it's a modern classic. Yep. I think it's, yep. it, it, it is a must read for older and younger generations alike. Well, I, I think there are probably maybe, as I say somewhere, maybe 11 people in the world who haven't read it already. <laughs> if you're one of those who have read it and loved it, because almost everybody who did read it loved it. If you're one of those, you'll be interested to hear Marcus's backstory in the conversation that we had just a few days ago. If you have haven't read it, do go get the book, read it. It is a wonderful, wonderful read. And the thing, if you know the book or have heard of the book, that is so unusual about it is that it is narrated by death. It is a story about World War II and a young girl named Liesel, who is family is very anti-Nazi. And she begins, she doesn't know how to read. She steals books. She learns how to read. 
and it's a really coming of age of her during World War II, but death is narrating this. And death says at one point, the soldiers are rushing toward each other, but what they don't realize is they're rushing at me. And it's a beneficent death. And, well, this is, again, back 17 years ago, Marcus explained why he chose death as a narrator and how he decided to depict death. Because the book wasn't working. And then it just struck me, I thought, what if death is afraid of us? What if death is haunted by humans? And that was when I thought, oh, that's the idea. That's the beautiful irony I need. And from there, I knew I was going to write and I wasn't going to stop. I love that story because to me, that's the final keystone that fell into place that makes the book so good. One more story before we launch into this interview. I used to work at a bookstore and an elderly woman came in and said, could you show me where the young adult section is? And I said, sure. Are you looking for a specific title? And she said, yes, I'm looking for the book thief. And I said, oh my gosh, if you haven't read it, are you in for an amazing journey? And she pulled out her copy which was tattered and miserable and falling apart. And she said, I'm an English teacher. I teach this book. So I have to get a new copy every five years or so. I think it speaks to the modern classicness of the book, of the work. Well, the one part of the story that you alluded to a minute ago is that the book was published as a young adult book. Mm -hmm. And yet here it is about World War II and it's about the Holocaust and it's about all these things happening around Liesl and death. And I thought, this is not really appropriate for young adults. I called the representative from the publishing house and said, I think you've got a real winner here. And he said, I've never heard of the book. (laughs) And he called back and he said, it's being published by the young adult section. I don't have any connection with them. But the idea is if we can get young people to read it, they'll get their parents to read it. The new paradigm, he said, being... Harry Potter, that the kids are reading that and getting their parents to read it. I did not think this was a young adult book, but the more I've read it, I've I've now read it three times. It appeals to everybody. I think of what Dave Egger said about his book, which is, you know, when he finished writing it, he didn't feel it was a young, I'm talking about the eyes and the impossible. Right. He didn't feel it was specifically written for young adults, but when he was done, he thought young adults could read this. And I think it's the same thing with The Book Thief. There's nothing inappropriate in it. It's a beautiful book with very adult themes, very complex adult themes, a very complex adult narrator. And yet it's one that I, as soon as Charlie, I feel, gets to an age where she can comprehend some of the massive tragedy of World War II that I'm going to have her read almost right away. It's an amazing book. Kate talking about her daughter, Charlie, my androgynous name. (laughs) But I I think that's true. I think Charlie will really enjoy it. She's a great reader, and she will enjoy this book. She will be fascinated by this book. And as I say, if people haven't read it, they should. Anyway, it's a classic. Marcus is way too generous in crediting us at Good Morning America with having started this book that was on the bestseller list for 10 years and more. And so... Special edition, we go back in time. We played you a little of Marcus 17 years ago. Here is Marcus today, our conversation with Marcus Zuzak, the author of The Book Thief. Marcus Zuzak, it is a pleasure, real pleasure to have you in the bookcase. It's been, I think, uh, 17 years or something since we talked when The Book Thief first came out and you were in the studio in Good Morning America. And I remember the interview fondly and I was always rooting for the book. It did so well. But it always amazed me about this book that you came to this idea of having death as a narrator. Did you start with that idea or 
did that evolve? Well, first, I want to say 17 years, <laughs> the best, most amazing, one of the most golden days of my life started talking to you that morning uh, on Good Morning America. And it did. It was three or four minutes that changed everything for me. And, and I'll never forget that. And uh, now I'll answer the question. But uh, I did want to register just how grateful I, I was for that, for your generosity uh, to, to both me as this stranger <laughs> who's walked in and uh, and to this book that I wrote that I honestly thought no one would read. I thought it would be my least successful book by a country mile. I remember you telling me that in the interview. You said, I know nobody's going to read this book. I mean, how preposterous is it? It's narrated by death. It's about the Second World War when millions of Jews were dying. But I think part of it was this idea of reading death as a narrator. And I am curious about whether you started with that idea. Well, Absolutely not. I only started coming to the real back, back, back story because the book just wouldn't go away. And so, and you so I would learn more and more about the process of writing it because I, I always got to talk about it and still get to talk about it like tonight or today. And so I started, I just had this idea that my mum and dad told me these amazing stories growing up outside of Munich and outside of Vienna. So my mum in Munich, my dad in Vienna. And my mum always told these stories that they were just childhood stories, and my dad too. But it was just going to be, firstly, I thought it was going to be non-fiction. And then I went, no, I can't do that. I'm incapable of just writing the truth. Uh, I was always just, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? What if? And then so I thought, it's going to be a 100-page novella. And it started with this particular story of my mum's foster mother throwing a bucket of hot water over her husband who was frozen to the icy floor out in the shed because she wouldn't let him in because he was drunk the night before. So these were the stories I grew up on, and it wasn't, we're going to tell you where you come from. We're going to tell you about history now. We're going to tell you about the Second World War and what we saw. It was more just about kids and parents and all the stories that happened. And out of that came this idea where I went, oh, it's going to be a 100-page novella. I started and I went, that's not it. That's not it. That idea is not it. Which is what always, and I'm sure most of the writers you talk to, say that. It's this process of elimination and that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And I realised I'd written about three deaths and that I'd written from death's point of view. And then I went, just in a very offhand way, and this is the thing, people think of writers as very deep thinkers, and I think it's true, but it's the offhand stuff. It's the little mistakes and miracles and offhand thoughts. And I went, Maybe I'll just put that idea of death narrating into that book set in Nazi Germany with the girl stealing books, and that's how I hit on the idea of death narrating that book. And it kind of made sense to me. So I didn't think, I just did it. But the amazing part to me, early on as I read it, and I thought this idea of death as a narrator was, well, okay, (laughs) if he wants to do that, okay. But then I realized... I was reading of a beneficent death who is vulnerable, who sees the reality of humans, but who doesn't apologize for what he does. Who's incredibly wary. Very wary. But he sees it as a necessary part of life. And I thought that idea of a beneficent death, even in the horrors of World War II, was a really interesting way 
to approach it. So that idea of a beneficent death really struck me as unusual, and I thought made the novel. Where did you come up with that? Well, failure. <laughs> because I wrote, I had this January, and you can imagine our January, of course, is the opposite of yours, where I was riding my bike eight kilometers, so maybe five miles to the beach every day, go for a swim, come back, start work. Didn't have kids, didn't have, you know, any other real responsibilities. Well, I was married and uh, I was trying to write this book. And I wrote 150 to 200 pages January, like just that January, probably 200 pages with death narrating this book. And then I read it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, that's <laughs> so awful. Like, it's, it's, I had, he was just enjoying his work too much. He was the typical death that I think you were expecting. And, you know, he was sardonic. He just was enjoying his work far too much. And he would say the most awful things, you know. And, and one of the things I remember him saying, and, you know, it's good I never put it into the, in the book, was he would say, he, at one point he said, this is the story of a small girl or, or a young girl. He said, do you like young girls? Well, I do, but I like everybody. You know, he had this, uh, there was this sort of thing where I felt like I had to take a bath every time I wrote a page. And it wasn't, it wasn't littered with that element, but there was just a real, it was the full darkness. And then I read that, so I went, you make these drastic changes. And I went, right, scrap death, scrap death as a narrator. That's not going to work. And then I wrote from Liesl's point of view. And now I had a new problem. And the new problem was that despite my German and Austrian background, I had the most Australian-sounding German girl <laughs> in the history of, of novels, you know. And so I went straight that, and I went to just straight third-person narration. And that was kind of everything that I was trying to avoid in the first place. And so, uh, and, and this is what I say to people who want to be writers, you know, at a bookstore or, you know, those sort of events, and I just say, um, you know, you think we've got, I've got, people think I've got some great imagination. I don't. I just have a lot of problems. You know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and it's true in that where, where is our imagination? It's getting around the problems. And I still remember yeah. where I was when I thought of death not being all powerful and having that sardonic view. And I was like, I was sitting, I was in Tasmania, very, the southern island of Australia, sitting on the back of this little sort of cabin, and I thought of the last line of the book. And I went, huh, that's it. He's, he's all powerful. He, he knows, you know, he's got that element, you know, what, exactly what you were talking about, but he's all powerful kind of minus one. He has this chink in his armor that he's afraid of humans and he's afraid for us. And he wants to tell this story to prove to himself that humans can be beautiful and selfless and worthwhile. There's a glowing light of optimism in me that always makes me believe that I can do it. You know, I might not be able to do it today. And, and that's what I say to people as well. You just keep turning up. And you don't beat yourself over the head. And like, I don't so much anymore. Where I, I, and I say to people... It's okay that if you don't feel like writing that day, that week, the test is if you come back. And I just kept coming back enough times and I just, there was something about this book. It always excited me. And it, as it kept getting bigger, I just went, do it. Just do it. There was just always something to cling to. There was always just something that kept me interested. And that's what death is doing the whole book. It's kind of me. 
I'm standing next to death as death says, come on, you know. I know this is terrible, everything that's going on, and this is an awful time, but just come a little further. You know, you know you want to. You know you want to. And a good example of that is when he just gives away what's going to happen at the end, halfway through the book. Mm. He says, your favourite character is going to die, and I'm telling you now. And I just, so whenever there was an instinct, I just went, do it. I think that was my greatest strength in a way, writing that book as well. And it was just my naivety as well. I, I, just, I wasn't afraid of writing about Nazi Germany because I didn't know any better. And mm. I just thought I could do anything I wanted. Were you surprised yeah. that this book was on the bestseller list for more than a decade? I mean, not a few weeks, not a few months, not a couple of years, but a decade. And here's a book that you thought no one would read. What was the thread, the thing that really struck people, you think, that made this book so endearingly popular for such a long time? I should have a good answer for this, and, you know, maybe I do, and I'll try to be more direct answering these things because I've had plenty of time to be able to think about that. I think that idea of death as narrator pulled a lot of people in. And it's not that it hasn't been done before, but the quirkiness of that idea. And then that allowed me to write in a certain way and to use language in a way that was really playful. Because to me, death, and it's why when you read the book, there are sentences that are just wrong. And I wanted death to be just left or right of humans. So just like the missing part of us, the missing part of life being death. And I wanted him to speak about the sky and the trees and the earth and us as colleagues, as if we're all just part of this one big thing that's always moving. And so death as narrator. And then I think the other thing was I didn't realize how much people would love the characters in the book. And they're good people. You talked about in one of your first iterations with narrator that death was taking too much pleasure, that he was a little too evil. And I'm interested in, as a writer, as you approach your books, do you have to like your narrator? Does it make it harder to write if you don't? Could you finish a book where you don't like your narrator? I think it depends on, there are certain actors that sort of, even if they're the bad guy, there's something likable about them. I think Tom Hanks is a good example. And hmm. I think it was Road to Perdition, he's hmm. a bad guy, but you still, there's still something, you can still see he's torn with his conscience. And I think I personally, as a writer, would find it hard to write a main character that I really don't like. But I think there's just got to be just something that always wants you to drag you along with a character. I want to write characters that people really cheer for, I, I suppose. I can't help myself because I think they're the stories and the characters that I've always loved. I've always sort of loved underdog <laughs> stories and, you know, people sort of rising above themselves. So I think for me, I think it would be it would be hard to write a character that, not, a, not one that I don't like, but one that I just don't love enough. Sometimes a book will leave me teary. And I remember when I, I'll never forget when I read The Book Thief, and, you know, sometimes I missed up. I get misty in my eyes, but the last line had me out and out crying. I don't want to give a spoiler, but that last line got me. When did you come up with that line? And was it early or was it late? It was about halfway through. You know, it's actually a play on another last line. And uh, I remember someone writing to me once really upset, accused me of plagiarism, but it was a sort of, 
I mean, I say it as homage or uh, homage, but I, I can't say. I have to say it was a sort of homage to the Norman MacLean story, which a river runs through it, which is made into that beautiful film as well. And the last line of that is, "I'm haunted by waters." And I always loved that line, and I loved that film, and I loved that book. And at some point, I, I thought of the last line of the book, Steve. And I don't think it has to be too much of a spoiler. I mean, it's been 17 years. <laughs> if you haven't read the book, it's your own fault. Read it. Well, there are there are only, as I say, there are only about 11 people in the world who haven't read it. So, and actually, the first line is all important to me. Is so the first line, and so that first line of first the colours. Just that as a first line. And then next line, then the humans. That's usually how I see things. And then, of course, here is a small fact. You are going to die. I don't want to write a book at all until I've got that first line. I've confessed to sobbing at the end of the book. Did you get teary when you were writing it at all? People come to me and say, so one of my favorite things about this book and having written it, and the life that, you know, that it's a part of me is people come up to me and they go, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and, it, and they follow that up with, you made me cry on public transport. <laughs> <laughs> and so the best thing is when someone says, it's my, you wrote my favorite book. I mean, if one person says that to you in your life, uh, I think you can die happy, really. And for the book thief, you know, that's why I just say it's got magic dust sprinkled over it. It's a lucky book. It's always been a lucky book. But, you know, to this day, I've never seen anyone reading it in public. The closest was on a plane. We went on a trip, and my wife said, there's a lady over there reading the book thief. And honestly, by the time I looked over, she wasn't reading it anymore. And uh, so it doesn't count. But to answer your question, Charlie, I was, when I was writing part 10, so the last 50 to 60 pages of the book, plus the epilogue, I was crying the whole time. The whole time. The whole time. Mm. Really? Well, Marcus Zuzak, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. 17 years now, that book, The Book Thief, has been out. It is still a gift to every reader who picks it up. And I follow your career with great interest because you do have that gift to be able to write books that have magic dust on them. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, it's been a so great much. pleasure. Can I, I just, uh, can I just talk to you for another hour? <laughs> <laughs> At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Marcus, use that rapid fire. Most influential book in your life. What's Leaving Gilbert Grape by Peter Hedges. Really? Good because great characters make great books. And that book is loaded with great characters. Ah. Did you read the book before you saw the movie? No, I did it in the reverse because you couldn't even, in the 1990s, you couldn't even get the book here. And then the film came out, and then that brought the book here. And now I have several copies, and one's a hardcover first edition. But Because I keep giving them to people saying, you've got to read this book. But that's one of them. That's my tonight's answer for that one. Great Australian author that American readers should be reading that aren't. Oof. Let me see. Well, the obvious one is Tim Winton, because he's Australia's favourite writer. And I... I'm just not sure if he... There's a book called Cloud Street, and I know Erin Clark, who is my editor in New York, read that book, and, and she she was floored by it. And so that's the one I would say. That's the go-to book, and that's the go-to Australian writer that American readers, I think, probably haven't read. I'm getting the sense that you're a little bit of a perfectionist. So I guess my question for you is, as a perfectionist, how do you know you're done? There comes a final point, or it's not a final point, there's a, there's a, a long grey area where you're working on something and you go, I'm, I think I'm starting to hurt it now. <laughs> I'm starting to actually take pieces of its soul away by trying to make it more perfect when it doesn't need to be perfect and it can't be perfect. So you can't sacrifice it being right for perfection. What's your philosophy on reading your reviews? I think probably like most people, it's to believe the bad ones if you're willing to believe the good ones. And also, but I think beneath all of that, and I think it's getting more difficult in one way and easier in another, but more difficult because now everyone's a reviewer. A number of writers have told us once the book is out, it's no longer mine, it belongs to the reader. And I put it down. We have presumed upon you to go back 17 years to talk about a book that existed then. But can you ever put a book aside and it's over and it's done and I simply move on? Or is it always with you? I think they're all always with me. And you just remember them less. And so I think I want to keep them with me. And I'm grateful to my previous books because they're all stepping stones to each other and back to each other. And books have been my life and books have changed my life as a reader and a writer. So I believe they stayed with you and, and yeah, they belong to the readers, but they also belong to me. And finally, Marcus, a question that we always find illustrative in five words, five words, not 580 <laughs> pages, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? I think it's, I think it's this, writing what I can believe. It was so good to go back and talk to Marcus again. I feel such excitement that his book was such a success and that so many people read it, so many people liked it. Book clubs read it and found it great. And that just kept it going and kept it going and, and kept it going. And I confess to him, which is true, 
that I cried, really cried when I finished the book. He doesn't tell us the last line there in that conversation. He just equates it to the last line of a river runs through it. But his last line is, and I'm, I'm not giving it away because it's 17 years out, death saying, I am haunted by humans. And it's just, it's a beautiful line when you get to it. Beautiful line. I mean, death gets all the great lines in the book. I mean, he's a fantastic narrator. And, you know, he, you mentioned at the beginning the line about armies think they're running at each other. They're not. They're running right at me. He also gets lines like, you know, when he's describing himself, I don't have those skull-like facial features you seem to enjoy pinning on me from a distance. You know what I truly look like? I'll help you out. Find yourself a mirror while I continue. (laughs) You know, he (laughs) describes colors all the time. He's constantly describing colors because they fascinate him. And at one point he says, the sky was the color of Jews. He gets all of these incredible lines. So in some ways, I got weepy many times throughout the book because death would say something and I would... I would literally double over. It was like I had been punched in the gut. Uh, At one point, he talks about taking the soul of a little boy, and he talks about that little boy stepped on my soul. He made me cry. I just, there were all these moments where I had to put down the book and reflect on what Marcus had written and what death had said. And that made the book really meaningful for me. So I did call you up right away and say, yes, dad, I loved it. Which I don't know was a, if it was a confirmation or what it gave you, but still it was an incredible read. And in some ways we owe the bookcase to the book thief because that was our first experience of you have to read this or I'm going to hunt you down where you are and hurt you. <laughs> well, as I say, it's wonderful to go back. And if people haven't read it, they should. And if people already have read it, read it again because it's that good. And I've enjoyed reading it subsequently as well, and I've always been very pleased by Marcus's success, for which we really weren't responsible. We Maybe we got a few people to read it, but word of mouth gets a book going, and that's really what was responsible for the long-term success of The Book Thief. Well, first, Dad always feels that way when somebody gives him a compliment, so take that with a grain of salt. But I wanted to say quickly before we wrapped up that next week we have a really exciting show. Ann Patchett's going to be, I mean, this was a great show too, but Ann Patchett's going to be a part of the show next week, and she's written so many incredible books, and we're really excited to talk to her about her new one, Tom Lake. We're not only going to talk to her about that, but about the bookstore that she owns in Nashville, Parnassus, which people in the publishing industry know is one of the great independent bookstores. So we get a twofer. We get to talk to her about Tom Lake, the new novel, and we get to talk to her about being a bookseller and how she got into it reluctantly and how she enjoys it now. We want to remind you of the people who are responsible for this podcast and then a final thought from Marcus Suzak. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I think I'll, I think I'm just going to say failure is definitely your friend.